I'd like for you to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1. The epistle of Paul to the Romans, chapter 1. And I want to read verses 14 through 17. I am under obligation, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks, to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The Apostle Paul says three simple things. In verse 14, he said, I'm under obligation. Verse 15, I am eager Verse 16, I'm not ashamed. I thought I'd give you the outline ahead of time in case your attention spans a little short today. Stuart Briscoe told his little boy one Friday, he said, Now, son, Monday you won't be going to school. I'm going to, going to take you to get some x-rays. And Stuart Briscoe said he didn't think anything else about it until Monday morning he got his little boy in the car and they were headed down the freeway in London to get x-rays. And he said, I looked over there and I could see the boy was frightened. He was scared to death, worried, pale as a ghost. He said, I said to him, now Jimmy, you have absolutely no reason to worry. You have no reason to be afraid. And Jimmy said, no reason to worry. I know what execution is. <laughs> he said, I was saying x-ray. He was hearing execution. He said he had to think about it all day Friday, all day Saturday, and all day Sunday. He said, the amazing thing to me was he's still around. He said, I would have been out of there a long time before that. Um, there are some things we feel obligated to do, but not eager to do. Um, when it comes to the gospel and to the sharing of the gospel, I think most of us feel obligated to do it but we have a kind of an execution complex. You know, we say to ourselves, well, if I don't, who will? You know, if I don't do it, nobody else will. And so we kind of suck it up and gut it up and do that. But there's no real eagerness or excitement about it. One of the most thrilling things about the apostle was is that toward the end of his ministry, he was still just as excited about the gospel as he was when he started. I mean, he's still enthusiastic about it. It was time for him to quit, really, but he's still excited and enthusiastic about the gospel. The question is, how does one regain that enthusiasm? Most of us are veteran Christians, and, and, and I, I dare say that some of us have lost our enthusiasm. You know, How does one get excited about the gospel of Christ and how does he maintain that excitement? That's a big question. Well, somehow he has to arrive at where the apostle was when he said, I am not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed. That's what we're seeking and what we desire. Think about that for a moment. We're all, we all have different personalities. 
There are some of you who are just born extroverted. I mean, it's easy for you to be with people. It's easy for you to talk to folks. You're gregarious and dynamic and effervescent. No problem for you to walk up to a total stranger at the supermarket and say, what about your soul if you drop dead today? There are some of us who take a little bit less direct approach, feel a little bit more reluctant and reticent to do something like that. We're just kind of born that way with a kind of embarrassment about, you know, sharing personal and deep things. I might get into something over my head. I might talk to somebody who knows more than I know about this. I might be asked a question for which I have no answers. I might be rejected. I mean, I just really don't have that much enthusiasm or excitement about sharing the gospel. Does that sound like anybody you know? But it is possible to arrive at a place where we're not that embarrassed about it, where we're not that reluctant. It is possible to arrive at a place where those barriers that prevent us from doing this wonderful work of the gospel are overcome. The Apostle Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because it is the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean anything to anybody until we remind ourselves that the very word gospel means good news. You ever known anybody that was ashamed or embarrassed about good news? Can you imagine anybody coming up to you, Andy, and saying, I shall hate to do this. I hope you don't get mad. I know I'm probably stepping out of line here. I I just want you to forgive me for, you know, butting in and and, and interfering. I just hope you don't hate me for this, but I've got good news. (laughs) I mean, how would that go over? There is something that's in the good news that makes the good news good. And, And those of us who have tasted this good news and this goodness know what know, know what I'm talking about here's something about the good news that makes it good you what is that that makes it good well I'm glad you asked because I won't tell you what makes the good news good is that there is a righteousness of God revealed in the good news what he's saying, a word there is, that there is a rightness of God that's revealed in the, in the gospel, in the good news. And, when, and in this rightness of God, there is a rightness to life. And that's good news. Because we've gotten ourselves in such a mess in our society, we're not really sure if there is a difference between right and wrong. And we would sometimes, I think we, we've gotten ourselves in such a mess that we don't know if we can tell the difference between truth and error. And this whole concept of good and evil has become so muddled and so um, uh, paled that we're just kind of wallowing in a morass of relativism, worried about political correctness. I've got good news for you. There is a rightness to life. There are moral absolutes. There is a right way to live and a wrong way to live. And in this right way of living, it pays dividends. It's like a person who's going to get his house built and somebody comes along to put up the bricks. You say, well, how are you going to do that? Well, it doesn't matter. You know, brick here, brick there, a little mortar here, a little mortar, brick here, brick there, mortar there, mortar everywhere. And, and after a while you're looking at it, you say, hey, that's not the right way to lay bricks. I don't know how to lay bricks, but I know that's not right. And somebody else comes along, he's got some specks, he's got a plumb line, he's got a square, he's got a level, and he's got the right way to do it. That's good news. 
There is a rightness to life, and the gospel reveals that rightness of life. And in the rightness of God, a man discovers the wrongness of self. I mean, the wrongness of self is not apparent until you discover the rightness of God. But most of us measure ourselves by ourselves, and we're real careful about that. Or we measure ourselves by somebody worse than we are. And so we find somebody who is worse than we, and our conclusion is, because they're worse than we are, we are better than they. And we take that illogical step, that illogical jump to this conclusion. Because I found somebody who is worse than me. That means I'm better than they, therefore I'm okay. doesn't work like that. For you don't measure yourself by yourself or somebody worse than you. You measure yourself by the rightness of God. And I heard about this preacher, preacher tell that he was raised in a little coal mining town and they had these big slush mounds. He said they were these, it was this residue they got as they mined the coal. It was black and dirty looking, dingy. And they just had them in mounds out by the mines. And one afternoon a lady living near the mounds, the slush mounds, went out and hung her clothes, her washing on the line, and stood back and you know, uh, admired it, clean, beautiful washing. But during the night, a snow came and covered that mound, those mounds of, of coal slush, so that when she got up the next morning, she saw her clothes against the background of that pure white snow, and she cried out, What happened to my wash? For now that it was viewed against the background of pure white, that wash looked dingy and dirty and, 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 and wrong and bad. The good news is, is that you discover the rightness of God. The problem with that is, is that you discover the wrongness of self. But the good news is, is that God stands eager to impart to you His righteousness. You see, the only thing that God is waiting on is for you and me to discover the rightness of Himself and the wrongness of ourself. And when we make that discovery, then He's eager to impart His righteousness to us. It's called imputation. Now, how do you get right with God? Well, there are two alternative options. You get right with God by living a perfect life. All you got to do is go out of here today and live perfectly for the rest of your life and find out some way to make up for what you've already done. That's all you got to do. You say, well, that's impossible. That's right. That leaves the other option, that is to discover that God has purchased by the blood of His Son a gift and that gift He wants to impart to you when you discover your wrongness and His rightness. And that gift is His righteousness you receive as a gift. The thing that makes the good news good is that there is rightness in it. Second, the thing that makes good news good is that there's power in it. He says it's the power of God. The word is dunamis. It means dynamic. He's saying that there is a dynamic of God that enters a life and corrects it. Now some of you in this room and are watching on television have made a mess out of your life. The good news is there is a power that will change that. Now I know I'm talking to... Um, independent thinkers and bright people and business people. And business people want to know the bottom line. We're pragmatic. Bright folks, independent thinkers want to know, does this work? I got good news for you 
practically oriented folks, the gospel of Jesus Christ works. It makes a difference in life. Now I acknowledge the fact that most of us here this morning have, you know, we, our lives are pretty cared for and ordered and we're on our way to the skies on flowery beds of ease. But I talk to people every week, divorced people, single parents, people whose homes were like war zones and whose marriages were like torture chambers. And I pe- talk to people who are bankrupt both morally and spiritually. And I talk to folks who have been on the brink To those people I speak this morning and say that the good news of the gospel is there is a dynamic that changes that and corrects that and makes that new and different. That's the power of God. It's the power of God unto salvation. I realize that that we say a lot of words in church that nobody understands. One of those words is saved. What does it mean to be saved? I still like the word. It means to be rescued, to be delivered from what you are, what you've done, where you're going. Listen to me. Because of what you are, you've done what you've done. And because of what you are and have done what you've done, you're going where you're going. You can go to that person and say to him, Listen, Jesus Christ died on the cross to deliver you and save you from what you've done. And he was raised from the dead and is at the right hand of the Father making intercession to save you from where you're going. And in the interim there is this dynamic by the power of the Holy Spirit who saves you from what you are. There are some folks who are just miserable because of what they've done and their lives are riddled with guilt because of their sin. To that person you and I can go with the gospel and say, hey, I've got good news. Jesus Christ saves you from what you've done. And there are some people who are literally terrified concerning where they're going. They stay up at night and watch television all night because they can't be alone and in their bed. You can go to that person and say to that person, Hey, i got good news. Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, He saves you from where you're going. And there are some people who would change in a heartbeat if they could change. They don't like the way they are. And you can go to that person and say, listen, Christ saves you from what you are. You know anybody be ashamed of that? That's good news. Apostle Paul said a second thing. He said, I'm under obligation. I'm a debtor. I'm living in the red. Now I need you to hear, with, hear me now just for a moment. I, I, I want to talk where most of us are who sit in this auditorium, Christians, and long-term Christians. You and I have some obligations and some responsibilities that are incontrovertible and irrevocable. Now somebody might say, I can't teach and that, I don't have the gift of teaching, but that's probably true. And some folks who are teaching do not need to be teaching because they don't have the gift of teaching. But the fact is, just because you don't have the gift of teaching, you still have a responsibility to tell what you know about the precious Lord Jesus Christ. And some people do not have the gift of evangelism, but everybody has a responsibility to share the gospel. 
And some folks don't have the gift of giving, but everybody has the responsibility, an irrevocable responsibility to tithe at least his in, 10% of his income. There are some responsibilities from which we cannot escape. Now God came to Abraham and He said, Abraham, I want to bless you like nobody has ever been blessed. And Abraham said, wonderful, thank you very much. God said, don't interrupt me. I want to bless you in order that you might be a blessing. You mean I, I have to be a That's right. And the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and he said, the God of all comfort will comfort you. And the Corinthians said, wow, wonderful, thank you very much. I'm full of sadness and despair. And God said, don't interrupt me, I'm not through. The God of all comfort comforts you in order that you might comfort others with the same kind of comfort. You mean I have to comfort if I'm comforted? That's right. And Jesus said that if you have a rich experience with me, that experience shall be like a well springing up into you for eternal life. And we say, well, wow, wonderful. I want that experience. And Jesus said, now wait a minute, don't interrupt. I'm not through. Out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Now watch this carefully. We want to be blessed without being a blessing. And we want to be comforted without comforting. And we want wells, but we don't want to be rivers. But Jesus does not call sponges to Himself. He calls pipelines through whom He pours His blessing to a lost world. Now whether you like it or not, whether you remember it or not, when you walked down the aisle of a church or whatever you did and you committed yourself to Jesus Christ, your life to Jesus Christ, you accepted the burden of the world when you did that. And you accepted a responsibility from which you cannot be released. There are some irrevocable responsibilities. I'm obligated. Now watch this. When a person understands the good news of the gospel, and when he understands his obligation and responsibility, and when there is proper tension between the good news and the goodness of the gospel and my obligation and responsibility, when there is proper tension between the two, what results is an eagerness. An eagerness. So I lose my eagerness and my enthusiasm when either I have put too much emphasis on one or the other or I get a guilt trip on when I don't do what I'm you know, call to do, but when there is proper tension, there is eagerness, and that eagerness is maintained. The amazing thing about Paul was, is that this statement was made near the end of his ministry. This man was ready to retire. He's old. I mean, he'd been beaten with stripes. He served his time. He's done his hitch. He'd been brutalized with rods. He'd been stoned and left for dead. He'd been shipwrecked and imprisoned. He'd been ridiculed and rejected. Enough is enough. It's time to quit. Somebody asked Paul, what's up now? Oh, I want to go to Rome. At your age. 
Oh, yeah, and after Rome, I'm headed to Spain. In your condition, man, why don't you quit? That's the amazing thing about this. Caleb holds a fascination for me. He's one of the twelve who went across the Jordan to take a check out Canaan. He's one of the two that said, let's step over the Jordan and possess our possessions. But the other ten prevailed and all ten of them died. Now they're, in the Jordan, they're across the Jordan. Now they're in Canaan. And now Joshua's in charge. And Joshua says to Caleb, which part do you want? We're dividing up for the tribes. Take your pick. Social Security, whatever. And Caleb looked over those mountains, tall mountains, and he said, Give me the mountains. I want to die climbing. And the amazing thing about this is, that old man now is 80 years old, and he said himself, I'm just as excited, I'm just as virile, I'm just as dynamic, I'm just as enthusiastic as the first day I set foot on this land. I hadn't lost a thing. Pretty amazing. It's never too late to start. Sophocles wrote Oedipus Rex when he was 75. Golda Meir became the Prime Minister of Israel at 71. Conrad Adenauer was first elected Chancellor of West Germany at 73 and served 14 years. Forced to retire at 70 as a football coach at the University of Chicago. Amos Alonzo Stagg coached for 14 more years at the University of the Pacific and was voted Coach of the Year at the age of 81. Tennyson was 83 when he wrote Crossing the Bar. Socrates was 80 when he took up the study of music. Michelangelo completed, completed his greatest work of art at the age of 87. Grandma Moses began painting at 79, was still painting beautiful folk art at 100 years of age. Albert Schweitzer was still holding as the, his place as the president of his hospital in Africa at the age of 89. Goethe wrote Faust when he was 80. Judge Oliver Wendell Holmes set down his most brilliant legal opinion at the age of 90. John Wesley preached until he was 88. At 83, Gladstone was elected Prime Minister of Great Britain for the fourth time. Arthur Rubinstein was still making concert tours at the age of 85. It's never too late. It's not time to quit. Where's the enthusiasm? And I read this story and I'm through. A man by the name of George Cafago played for the old Brooklyn Dodgers football team. It's back when the professional football team was just beginning. And they had a football team named the Brooklyn Dodgers. You know the baseball, but football. And he played on this football team, and they were playing one day the New York Giants, their prime arch rivals. And George Cafago almost single-handedly was bringing the ball down the field. And it was just before the halftime, and he took the ball, and he was... He, he, he broke some tackles and he was bounced around like a ping pong ball and he was struggling and trying to make yardage, trying to make a touchdown before the half and about five New York Giants piled on him and just as he started to the ground, the timekeeper fired the pistol to signal the end of the half and an enthusiastic fan but not a very wise, smart one 
turned to his friend and said, my goodness, they had to shoot him to stop it. <laughs> they couldn't stop him. Not imprisonment could stop him. Not, not beatings could stop him. Not stones could stop him. Not rejection or imprisonment could stop him. They had to kill him to stop him. And so they took him down to Rome and they put him in a dungeon. And when the time came, they ripped off his head. It's the only way they could stop him. But I have a feeling that just before the guillotine fell, the Apostle Paul must have been saying in his mind, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray for an enthusiasm about this great work of God. Enthusiasm and excitement among our young people so they'd not be ashamed. Take a personal stand, not just with what they say on Sunday, but what they are on Monday. An attitude among the adults of this church, middle-aged adults, not just an obligation, but an excitement not just on Monday night when people come to visit, but every day to give the good news in their various world spheres. Among the elderly of this church, to die climbing, as excited about Jesus and His Word as they were when they were children, grant it to us, God, in Jesus' name. Now, I want to ask you today, look, there is anybody here who has never accepted Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is, is that Christ come into your life at the point of your faith when you turn from the life you now have, live to Him. Oh, what good news is that Jesus Christ enters your life to make it new. Or maybe you need to come this morning to place your life in the fellowship of the church to rededicate yourself to God. Maybe your influence, because you've gotten cold, has hindered the work of God where you are. We invite you to come right now while we stand to sing. You come.